And I just really want people to remember that each deal is, is a very individual thing, right? Every book that you sell, every opportunity that you have is specific to you, is specific to the agent, is specific to the editor and all those different elements. So don't worry about the systemic thing when it comes to your work. But when it comes to us pushing the industry forward, we need to think on that, that, that group level, right? But keep those two things separate in your head if you're a writer or if you're an agent even trying to figure out how am I going to profit and feed myself and pay rent on this business. We're mapping the frontier between traditional and indie publishing, and today Dongwon Song is joining us. Dongwon Song is an agent at Howard Moorheim Literary Agency, representing science fiction and fantasy for adults, young adult, and middle grade readers, as well as select nonfiction. He was formerly an editor at Orbit, a product manager for an ebook startup, and has taught as an adjunct instructor in the publishing program at Portland State University. Welcome, Dongwon. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, it's been nice to it's nice to talk to you again since you moved out of Portland before yeah. I could say goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, we know each other through my brief time with Portland State University and uh yeah, so it's really nice that a couple years later we're all d- being able to have this conversation once again. Yeah, I just um agitated in your <laughs> editing class with Jordana <laughs> as much as possible. <laughs> it was a good class. I enjoyed that one a lot. So I'm surprised you like I'm very happy that you want to talk to me again after all of the trouble we gave you. <laughs> no, you guys kept it interesting. That if I remember correctly that class was like at seven o'clock at night. So anything that kept us all awake at that point was good. Yeah, and I think that had a big effect on the behavior as well because you have to you're either like asleep or you're completely yeah. wired. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um you are in New York right now, which is I yes. I mean, if I am looking at the internet correctly, just been completely bonkers for the last several months. It has been a very interesting time to live in New York City. Um, you know, between the pandemic and quarantine and then all the protests over the past week. Uh, past few weeks at this point. Um, it's, been, it's been a really interesting time. Not that Portland is immune to that either. Um, but, you know, it's also, it's also been a good reminder of um, how great this city can be and how exciting it can be to be here as, you know, communities come together in this really difficult time. Oh, that's good. Um, I, yeah, I saw you were doing some mutual aid out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. So here's a fun icebreaker question. Um, what cool birds have you seen lately? Oh man! Uh, the other day, I misidentified a yellow warbler on Twitter. <laughs> I said it was a palm warbler because we'd been seeing lots of palm warblers early in the day, and I just posted a photo that I assumed was one of those, and I was wrong, and I was told so <laughs> on Twitter. So this is me publicly admitting that I screwed up, and I apologize to everybody. Uh, no, uh, we—I don't know. Um, it's been nice to go do a little bit of birding uh, recently, especially with the pandemic. It's a way to sort of get outside, be socially distanced, and like feel connected to the world and nice things in the world. Um, so yeah, saw a peregrine falcon on that same walk, um, which was really cool. And um, yeah, it's—it's it's been a nice time. Nice. We've got some kind of falcon that lives out in the field near our house. And uh, oh hell yeah. Yeah, he's great. I I haven't named him yet, but I don't. I feel like I don't deserve to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably has his own name. All right, so let's jump in to all of the good publishing stuff and the bad publishing stuff. Um, it's all mixed up. So, why did you become an agent, and what path did you take to get there? Ooh, I took a very complicated path to get here. Um, you know, the main reason that I, I became an agent and the reason I enjoy being an agent so much is um, getting to work directly with creatives and getting directly to work with writers and help them, you know, manage the careers and support them in all the ways in which that, you know, um, anyone who's in creative industry, but particularly writers need support, right? Helping them get income, helping them manage the careers, strategize, all those kind of things. Um, and, you know, I had worked in publishing for probably about 10 years before I sort of became officially an agent most recently. 
Um, but ironically, my first job in publishing was also at an agency. I started out as an assistant at a big agency, Sterling Lord of the Ristic. And I worked there for, I think, about three, three and a half years, something like that. And I'd just gotten to the point where I was starting to take on clients and then decided what I, I wanted to work in editorial instead. So that's when I moved to Hachette when I was working at Orbit. And, you know, the, the funny thing was at that point, I thought I didn't like pitching books. I thought I didn't like selling books. So I figured, oh, I'd switch to the point where I can buy books instead of sell books. Uh, unfortunately, the joke was kind of on me because all editors do all day is pitch and have to like convince everyone in their company to be behind a book. Um, so ironically, even though I didn't like pitching, I ended up getting really good at pitching by trying to avoid having to do that very thing. So which was worse? You know, at the end of the day, once I was forced to do it, I was like, oh, actually, I'm pretty good at this. And I actually really <laughs> like doing this. So, you know, as usual, it was just me being forced to do the thing that I thought I didn't want to do. And then be like, oh, fine. These vegetables are good, actually. <laughs> this is my favorite. I'm going to go buy a grill. <laughs> exactly. All right. Um, I love that. Um, and you were actually, you were at Hachette when Twilight happened, right? I joined Hachette sort of immediately in the aftermath of Twilight. And, you know, a funny thing happened that Twilight did so well that they basically gave every single person in the company just a flat bonus. They just was like, here's an extra paycheck, basically. And I had been there for, I think, literally a week and a half. And then I just got this extra check. And I was like, wow, what's happening? This is not my experience of publishing so far that somebody just hands me money for no reason. Uh, so, yes, I joined Hachette at a very good time. Um, and, you know, that was, that was right before the, the 2008, you know, housing crisis and the recession. So it was very good to be at a place that was financially secure, unlike a lot of my colleagues who were at other publishers at the time. Um, so I happened to be landed in, in a really good spot um, right just then. Do you feel like it kind of um, was was helpful in you being where you are today rather than like... I don't know, this is a terrible way to say it, but like lower on the hierarchy. <laughs> I mean, I sort of started and restarted my career several times at this point. So in one way, maybe not, but also like, yes, being at a place that had resources and being in a place that was, um, you know, I had the security of my job really let me focus on all the things that I learned in that position and really growing as an editor and as someone who like, was wrapping my brain around how publishing worked at that point in time. So, you know, I think there were material benefits to it at the same time that, I don't know, maybe if I'd gone to Random House, I might have ended up here anyways. Um, I think I think every single person I've talked to has, has um, responded to the, like, path question with, oh, it was all over the place. So <laughs> that yeah, tells... Yeah, I don't think anything. there's any, like, traditional linear path, right? Like, maybe it's like, oh, I do know people who started out as an assistant and then became an editor and then moved on and have been at the same imprint for 15 years. But I think that's the exception more than the rule, right? I think most of us, especially on the agenting side, have very sort of circuitous ways in and out of the industry. And, you know, some people want to be writers, some people want to be editors, and just sort of fall into these positions over time. So what makes a good agent and how can people find one? <laughs> the million dollar question everybody wants to know. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, you know, I, the hard part is, is there are a million different ways to be a good agent. There are also a million ways to be a bad agent, right? Um, I think... Each agent has their own way of operating, their own way of doing things. I'm very client care focused. I like having a smaller list. I like doing a lot of editorial development, you know, and that is a very specific way that I work that would definitely drive certain writers nuts. Like I've definitely talked to writers who, you know, as we talked about it, it became very clear that like the kind of editorial feedback and involvement that I wanted to have was either a, mat a mismatch for them in terms of their interests and style, or they were just not interested in having that relationship. Right. So the thing that makes a good agent is whether that agent is a good fit for you as a writer. Right. So the thing is, really, it's it's this process where you're trying to figure out what do I want out of my career? What do I want out of my process and how I like to communicate? And it's, is this a person who will be a good partner to me in that process? Right. So that's what makes an agent a good fit in terms of what makes a person a good agent or a bad agent is kind of down to. Well, A, the ethics, right? Like, are you an ethical person? Are you doing your responsibility in terms of looking out for your client's career over looking out for your own self-interest? 
Um, are you negotiating good faith? Are you a good person to work with, right? I think those are the main questions I think about when I look around the field and think, oh, that person's doing a good job or that person is doing a bad job. Um, and unfortunately, there are some people in that latter category who I look at what they're doing and I sort of feel like, oh, you are not being upfront with your clients or you're not being upfront with your business partners um, or you know, the other thing that I notice is like, oh, you're not treating the people who work for you well, right? You're not treating your assistants well and those kind of things. So the things the agents that make, who work for you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, thankfully, I've never been in that position. I've, I've only worked for really wonderful people. Um, and, you know, so I think for me, the thing is so much like, how do you treat other people? How do you do business? Those are the things that I feel like really determine whether or not you're a good agent. Um, that said, the other side of that is there's a certain level of aggressiveness that you need to have, right? You need to be willing to say no, to stand up to things, to push back and to very forcefully advocate for your writer sometimes, whether that's we deserve more money or whether that's no, you're not going to put that cover on the book or no, you're not going to do that copy or no, you're not going to talk to my writer like that. Right? So there's, there's a lot of different aspects of it. And I think the best agents are the ones who are very comfortable switching from making good friends with people and building really strong interpersonal connection and also shutting that person down very aggressively when that moment has to come without, without being cruel about it or without yelling or without, you know, being inappropriate. Do you feel like that um, there's more pressure on an agent compared to other people in publishing when it comes to like having ethical standards just because there's more of a social aspect to it? Quite frankly, I feel like there's less pressure on agents because there's so little oversight, right? Most mm -hmm. of us work very independently. Even at an agency, there's not a lot of oversight in terms of um, agents don't really have managers, right? We don't report to other people. We're, we're, we're part of an agency, but it's not like um, Howard, who owns the agency and runs it, is checking my work every day or I'm doing performance reviews with him, right? Um, you know, if word gets back to him that I've been behaving inappropriately or badly, then that will be an issue. But it's very different than when you are inside a major corporation or working inside the division or working in a team and how your relationship with those people works, right? So I think it's easier to get away with bad behavior on the agenting side because it is not centralized and there is very little oversight on individual agents. And, you know, um, I'm not sure exactly when this podcast is released, but in the past couple of weeks, we've seen a couple of very large agencies or not large agency, but very prominently, um, sort of flame out over the past couple of weeks around some of the Black Lives Matters issues and, you know, ways in which that we talk about race and equity within publishing. Um, you know, we've seen two fairly significant people uh, drop off the scene kind of shockingly precipitously. Um, and, you know, again, as that happened, a lot of stories came out about previous bad behavior. And that's kind of what I mean. Like, there was no one who was was collecting that, who was responsible for that, who you could, there's no HR department you could call about that person, right? So, um, so I think it's a big issue. I think it's a big issue that we face as an industry of, you know, how do we make sure that we are able to call out people who are doing harm to their clients um, and not serving writers well and sort of making all of us look bad as, as a group without sacrificing the autonomy that we all have and that we all enjoy. So how, and we'll, we'll talk about this uh, from different perspectives, but mm -hmm. just for a regular author who's looking for an agent, how would they kind of guard against going with someone who um, is not good for them um, and who might take them for granted or hurt them somehow? Uh, there's a few things, you know, Google that person, right? Um, look at Query Tracker, look at what people say about them on Query Tracker. Query Tracker is a website that... Um, basically keeps information on all the different agents and is basically, um, I guess like a, uh, it's like rate my professor, but for agents, right? Like, you know, it's not necessarily a rating system, but there will be comments from people who submit to them and, you know, how that person responded, how that person treated them, things like that. So it's a way to get a little bit of insight into how an agent responds and things like that. Um, I find it's a little bit misleading, but you know, I'm an agent and I'm the subject to these reviews. So of course I feel that way. Um, that said, I don't have a problem with Query Tracker. I think it's a great website. I think it's a great resource. Um, so that's a good place just to sort of scan and say, oh, this person is a nightmare or not, right? Um, Twitter is also a good way. And that's just a way for you to sort of judge for yourself. You can follow someone, someone see what they say. Do they talk about the business in a way that you appreciate? Do they seem approachable? Do they seem smart, right? Um, and then the most, well, and then ask your friends, right? Ask your personal network. 
um, you know, make as many friends with other writers as you can. And especially folks who are at your level. And as those people start to get agents, as they make more friends, you can ask around and be like, hey, what's this person's reputation? And then the last step is when you are offered representation by uh, an agent, you should have a conversation with them. You know, ask them as many questions as you can about how do you do business? Um, you know, what are your priorities? Those kind of things, right? Like really ask the most difficult questions you can think of in terms of how you want your career to go and what you think difficult decision points might be, how do they handle certain situations? And then, you know, be very skeptical about, about the responses that they give you. And if you're not feeling good about that, then trust your instincts. Um, and then also ask to talk to some of their clients. Um, that's the thing that I almost always offer when I'm offering representation is the opportunity to have a conversation or exchange some emails with someone I do represent. And I love it when they ask for something really targeted, right? When they're like, okay, I'm in this kind of a position. Have you ever worked with someone in that position? Or, you know, I'd like to talk to someone whose project you haven't sold or have struggled selling, right? Um, and I think those are really interesting things to, to ask for and to really get a clear picture of what is it actually going to be like working with this person? I think that last question that you brought up is really a perceptive one for an author to ask, like maybe one who's been querying for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, honestly, if I were to start doing this, which I don't foresee, um, that wouldn't occur to me until like later in the process, like, oh, maybe I should ask them this. So hopefully yeah. that, that gives somebody a good uh, leg up there. Okay, so it's been a week as we as we mentioned earlier. Um, and one of the big things that's happened is the, uh, the publishing paid me hashtag. Mm -hmm. um, so we've had a lot of sudden transparency about author advances. And I went to the bank yesterday to open a business account and like ended up trying to explain publishing <laughs> like tr traditional publishing good to luck i've been trying to do that for 15 years i don't think my parents still understand how it works so the look know. he and of course he was asking about like how the authors get paid because you know i was talking about self-publishing how you have to pay up front for a lot of the stuff and he's like well what do other authors do like they don't pay for it and i'm like well <laughs> and i started trying to explain advances and royalty structures and i can tell that his mouth is open behind his mask <laughs> just like <laughs> what? And he's like, that's, that's, who does that? And I said, okay, mm -hmm. so this is confusing for a lot of people. So with all the transparency that is starting to happen, like, why weren't people talking about this before? And why was it so nebulous? And why does it continue to be? Because it's always hard to talk about money, right? I don't know if that's a cultural thing. I don't know if that's a societal thing. But talking about how much money you're making, especially when you're talking about um, a creative project, because it's so random, right? You know, I know, or just limiting to projects I've worked on, I've worked on books that, you know, got paid six figures per book. And I've worked on books that barely got paid five figures per book. And there's no qualitative difference between those. They were both really good books. And obviously, I believe in both of those things. And I've had books that we sold for $15,000 that outsold books that we sold for $100,000 by orders of magnitude, right? There's no guarantee that the big advance also means that it's going to be a bestseller. Advances are so much about what you can convince somebody something is worth which is a really different thing from that's what this thing is worth. The, the way you know what something is worth, and again, we're using worth in terms of purely in terms of sales, purely in terms of royalties, purely in terms of this is how corporations value things because that's how they make money. So if we're accepting that money is a measure here, the way you know is how many books you sold at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But an advance happens before you sell the books. An advance is your expectation of what you can convince somebody or what something similar to it or what that previous authors or whatever, what other previous books that author has published have sold, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you're measuring to. Those are the comp titles that we talk about. Um, now, comp titles put in a structural bias, right? Because if there are a hundred books by, by, you know, white people that have sold, you know, millions of copies, and then there are only five books by black people who have sold that many copies, then it gets very hard to say, yes, this book is exactly like Toni Morrison, right? But if you don't want to compare it to Toni Morrison, then it's like, well, who, what are my other options versus when you're looking at, you know, the wide range of authors who are white, you have a much greater ability to pick and choose stuff that is very specific, right? So in my view, a lot of the issues around publishing paid me are less about 
black authors specifically or you know poc authors generally getting paid less per book than uh, a white author or a cis author is it's it's more about how few the deals that we're seeing go through are for certain segments relative to the overall market right um, because what that means is there aren't enough comp titles. There, there isn't enough range. There isn't enough body of work for us to be really talking about, okay, how do we publish this? How do we publish it well? How do we com compare this to other things? You know, what are marketing strategies? Because we're all queuing off of The Hate You Give, which is such a very specific book that was published in a very specific time. And, you know, it, there's only so much you can do with that. And it's a, an echo chamber and self-perpetuating. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I think the way we need to think about stuff like publishing paid me, um, and I know we wandered a little bit off your original question there. But I don't care. I wander away. <laughs> <laughs> is, you know, that is the thing that's raising a systemic issue, right? And if we're thinking about it on a systemic level of, you know, we as an industry need to address this because the, this massive data, this massive reporting is telling us things that, you know, writers and the audience needs to know about how publishing works. But if we drill down to an individual level, and this is where I become a little concerned as I saw a lot of writers walk away from that feeling very upset of like, oh, I didn't get that, or I'm never going to get that, or why should I try and sell my book if that's what people are getting paid? And I just really want people to remember that each deal is, is a very individual thing, right? Every book that you sell, every opportunity that you have is specific to you, is specific to the agent, is specific to the editor and all those different elements. So... Don't worry about the systemic thing when it comes to your work, but when it comes to us pushing the industry forward, we need to think on that, that, that group level, right? But keep those two things separate in your head if you're a writer or if you're an agent even trying to figure out how am I going to profit and feed myself and pay rent on this business. I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking about this. Um, I know. I covered, a, I covered a lot of ground there real fast. So. Yeah, and I, I think that... Um... I think I was seeing a lot more black and white thinking, obviously it's Twitter. Mm -hmm. So, um, a lot of like, well, this is bullshit. Like, <laughs> you know, it, this is wrong because this is one way and this is the other. But then I was seeing, you know, there's the top authors who are having these mm -hmm. like disparities, but then there's just other authors I've never heard of all over the map. And so I was trying to like in my head kind of grasp them and I couldn't do it. I was yeah. just like, and I guess at a smaller, and I did have some experiences with this um, yeah. in my own, you know, work. But um, you probably have had a lot more than me. Um, <laughs> one just, thing that's really useful, how do you do comps for the smaller books? I guess exactly. Well, just to jump in real quick, one thing that's really useful in terms of trying to make sense of the data is um, Grace P. Fong. Uh, she has put together a, a Google spreadsheet of all the data and has also put up an, an anonymized uh, survey option. So anyone can enter the information without being, without you know, uh, revealing necessarily their history. So uh, they've done a lot of work, or she's done a lot of work to build out um, a little bit more robust reporting around it. Um, and so you can, you can go look up that information. She's at Fictograph on Twitter. She's a brilliant writer and a brilliant um, artist as well. Uh, so I would A, recommend following Grace generally, um, but also she's done a lot of great work around this issue. So going on to a different topic that is a major topic of discussion this week, we have heard over the years, sometimes in more concentrated um, efforts, and then, you know, sometimes just not at all for long periods of time about how we need more diversity in publishing. Mm -hmm. um, but you'd prefer to use the word decolonize, which mm -hmm. I love. So can you please explain the difference in how um, the work you do as an agent serves that end? Right. So, uh, you know, my issues with the term diversity kind of cover a, a few different things, right? One, diversity has been, A, has been so overused that it's sort of been completely defanged and it's hard to know what it really means anymore. But one of the things that I always hear when people talk about diversity is it's so, it has this sort of implication of a, of a corporate program in certain ways. And it always feels like, okay, there's an end point to diversity. There's a point at which we are diverse enough where we've taken sort of like this, this, um, this group of white people and added enough seasoning to it that it's no longer as white as it was. And therefore it is, it is, it is now, it is now um, reached a certain end point, right? 
Um, and I think for me, that feels like the wrong way to think about it because it's not about adding enough um, uh, black and brown people, enough queer people, enough disabled people, enough people from marginalized backgrounds into sort of a, a still pr predominantly white cis and straight in environment. It's about how do we shift our thinking about what are the stories we're telling and how we're telling them and who are we telling stories for, right? So the idea of decolonizing is addressing the, the historical legacy that colonization has had, whether that's chattel slavery here in the United States, whether that's uh, colonization of, of indigenous peoples, whether you know, that is you know, uh, American influence in East Asia or European influence throughout the world. You know, there's a variety of ways that, that colonization impacts how literature works. And it is a useful framework to think about it because it always forces you to think about the context, right? Who's telling this story and whose story is this to tell? Are you taking someone else's story because that person uh, didn't have the same level of power and privilege that you did because of the history that of your, your position relative to that person? It, it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking that centers privilege and what your privileges are relative to the story that you're trying to tell. So, that helps us, for example, avoid an American dirt situation, right? Where you have, you know, someone who is a well-intentioned, uh, you know, I, I believe she is mixed race, but is a predominantly white person who's grew up in a very white environment, telling a story about, um, uh, you know, Latinx people trying to emigrate to the United States and really telling a story that necessarily wasn't necessarily hers to tell, right? And, you know, as you can tell, even as I'm trying to talk about it, all the issues around diversity are coming in. It's like, well, is she brown enough, right? And she even like said that, that she didn't feel brown enough to write this story. And that is, that is a messed up way to think about it, right? Because for me, the issue is more that she is a privileged, you know, very American, very um, uh, centered in, the, in our particular culture without a deep understanding of what the people who were emigrating were experiencing and what their stories were and how to center their experience rather than project her idea of their experience onto them, right? So decolonization is a way that gives it, lets us start thinking about those issues in a more nuanced way because it's about lines of power, it's about history, it's about privilege rather than about um, a strict adherence to skin color or racial identity or national history. It sounds like um, diversity in itself, like by definition is tokenizing. If you're yes, talking exactly. about like putting, you know, additives to a cookie or something like that, mm -hmm. those are still mm -hmm. like, look at our chocolate chips, look at our walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that's interesting when you talk about the not being enough thing, because that's something that I've heard from a lot of, especially mixed race people uh, mm -hmm. where they're like, I can't, nobody wants my story because I don't fit into one of these boxes. Right. Yeah. And right. especially like, it also seems that there's like, extreme white gaze on that especially for like American mm -hmm. dirt it's like they want to look at it from the you know it makes the white ladies feel good point of mm -hmm. view like mm -hmm. and that kind of also brings me to like how many times have you heard that only white women read because oh I've heard God. that a lot <laughs> constantly constantly and you know I mean this is this is the problem because as a publisher you need to think about demographics right like for me in this thing I talk about relatively frequently is all of publishing can be boiled down to one question, which is, who is this for, right? Anytime you're writing a book, anytime you're publishing a book, anytime you're marketing a book, you're, what you're trying to figure out is, who's the audience for this thing, right? So the thing that we know as publishers is the vast majority of the book buying audience, and by vast majority, I mean like 65% or something like that. I'm, I'm making that number up. I don't know if it's accurate. It's somewhere in that ballpark. That the majority of the book buying audience is upper and middle class white women, which then gets translated to only white women, right? When that's not true at all, right? And when you consider that if you can reach 5,000 people, 10,000 people, 20,000 people, you can make a really successful book and a really successful career for a writer, right? You don't need all readers to get behind a book. You don't need to aim at the center of the market every single time. So when you hear people talking about like, oh, you know, this book isn't for the expected sort of soccer mom audience, that sort of like very um, ad by demographic 
concept of like who our audience is, then, you know, I think that you end up with a very limiting idea of who publishing is for and who books are for. So, you know, I think the more that we can understand that a lot of different people read books and also just because someone didn't read a book yesterday doesn't mean they won't pick up a book tomorrow, right? If we only reinforce the idea that these are the people who read books, then we're never going to grow the audience past what we have. And frankly, we're not going to survive as an industry, right? So, you know, I'm known, I think, for working with a lot of uh, writers from marginalized backgrounds of, of a wide variety. And for me, that is because, A, I'm really interested in those stories. Those are the ones I respond to personally because of my own background. But also, it's, it's a little bit of business decision, too. It's a little bit of, actually, I think we can make a lot of money by marketing to audiences who have been traditionally ignored by the industry, right, and by media generally. And if we start approaching those audiences and writing books and publishing books that target them and open up their, their access then I think we can really build a way for publishing to be very sustainable going forward because we, have, we can access a much wider audience and a much broader group of people than we've traditionally thought about when we publish books. And especially as just business in general decentralizes, it seems like that uh, requirement to niche down is one of the biggest like, mm -hmm. success recommendations that people can give and I don't see why that wouldn't apply to publishing as well mm -hmm. um have you seen instances where you have been able to get people who don't read to start reading <laughs> like I mean that's interesting to me the only time that um I've had someone reference that on this show is someone who you know was um doing publicity for YouTube stars and, you know, seeing young people being really excited about reading their biography. But mm -hmm. I mean, I, I feel like with all of the different ways that we consume media now and how like diverse that is, um, it might actually be inroads to people consuming books in a different way. Like what, what are what are some examples that you've seen you know, it, it sort of comes in two forms. The one that's the most obvious one is I work with a, a few middle grade and young adult writers, right? And they do a lot of school visits and library visits. And so often when I talk to them after they do those visits, you know, they're going to schools that aren't necessarily the most well-funded, that aren't in the best neighborhoods. And they'll show up and there'll be 300 kids there who read their book. And in part because it was a program through the school, but it was people who we don't think of as the book buying audience, right? For whatever reason, right? And those reasons are profoundly flawed. And, um, but, you know, when I talk to the, my writers who go to those things and meet with those kids and have these experiences, and they're always, you know, one of them in particular, they always come back from those events with the most chaotic stories of like, this kid asked this completely bananas question, or this person dragged me completely for, you know, while I was on stage. And like getting owned by a 13 year old while you're on stage is, is deeply brutal. But also like, there's such a joy in that experience because here's this 13 year old kid who's clearly like, not well adjusted and not doing good in school and not well liked by his teachers but read this book enough that they can respond to the writer in a way that like shows that they understand who the writer is as a person because they read the book. Right. And that is a level of engagement that is so exciting to me. And even to that person who's getting deeply dragged in that moment, you know, you can tell that there is a love and affection that, that they have for even that deeply chaotic, terrible child. Um, because that person isn't one who's normally being seen by our educational structures right and isn't being seen by the books that we're publishing and so they have an opportunity to connect in a way that they haven't before right and so providing those opportunities is so exciting to me right and you know even as i'm talking about it there's a way in which i think that it can sound a little patronizing right um but i think so much of it is is if we can find stories that are really specific and really honest then people will find ways to connect with that and i think that to me is the core of what we're trying to do here um yeah. So, you know, I don't know that I've ever had someone come up to me and say, oh, I never read books until I read this one. But I can see the impact that is happening at these school visits. I can see the impact that this writer and other writers I know and, you know, people who operate in that sort of school visit space get to have this really special experience of meeting lots of kids who are being exposed to their work in exciting ways. And that places a profound importance on young people reading. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, because like I can't imagine adults who haven't who weren't reading when they were children starting to read more. I mean, I could be wrong, but like I'm having I mean, a hard time it. picturing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was lucky enough to work on a book series that has been turned into a pretty successful TV show, and that's The Expanse. And I cannot tell you the number of people I meet. And, you know, this is a very different kind of conversation than I was talking about in terms of like kids seeing themselves represented on page. But I meet a lot of people now who are like, oh, yeah, I don't read that much, but uh, I watched this TV show and then I read those books and those books are great, right? Like there is a way in which I do think if you're telling good stories that are exciting, then I do think there's a group of people who buy one book a year or two books a year, right? And just because they're not the voracious readers that some of us are that we think of as, as you know, oh, I read four books a month or whatever it is, right? Um, just because they're buying one book a year or two books a year, I think that's also really wonderful. And I think getting those people to maybe even buy that second book or making sure that they bought that book this year, that's a really exciting moment and opportunity too. So, you know, I think, I think on so many levels, we need to be less restrictive of thinking about who is our audience and who is our reader, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talk to writers so much and one of the things I tell them is your competition isn't necessarily other writers. You're not competing with other books in the market. You're competing with like, someone's Xbox, right? And you're competing with Netflix and Amazon's, you know, Amazon Prime Video or whatever it is. So what we need to think about more is how are we making really engaging books that draw people in? And, you know, I think finding ways to connect with those things, right? Like the number of people who have now read the Witcher books because they played the game or watched the TV show, right? And, you know, the sales of the, that book just went through the roof after the TV show happened or the, the Netflix show happened. And I don't think that's a bad thing, right? I think so many people will look down on that situation, but instead I'm like, oh, that's a million people who have now read this Polish, this very strange Polish writer's short stories, which are effectively what those Witcher books are, um, that never would have been exposed to it otherwise, so. Okay, so not only is the media, the other sources of media competition, but it's also like a tool in a lot of ways. I think we can make them tools, right? I think, yeah. I think if you learn that you operate within a wider media marketplace and you're, it's not just you and other books, it's you and everybody's attention, then you can find other ways to draw people in that aren't just about beating out that other writer who happens to be in your category and publishing a month after you, right? I think we just need to shift our thinking as publishers and as writers um, about who our audience is and how we want to access them. I think it's so ironic that like the idea of, you know, a book needing to be for everybody and how that restricts, um, restricts the industry is like myopic when what you really need to do is be myopic in a different way, (laughs) if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. I mean, people respond to specificity, right? Like the things that always work the best are things that are like, I mean, yes, every now and again, like that super generic thing does work, right? Um, But in general, I think the thing that's most exciting, the the things that can really blow up and make a big impact are things that are so specific that no one else could have written them, right? You know, uh, I'm thinking about like Fleabag, for example, right? That's a thing that's been a huge cultural sensation over the past few years. And that is the weirdest, strangest, most specific experience and most specific story that a ton of people found connection to because of a specificity, right? So... As, as someone who is identifying projects to be published, that's always what I'm looking for. I'm always looking for a sense that I know who the person who wrote this is. I knew why they wrote it. I know what their point of view is. And I know sort of the, the conditions under which they wrote this book. Uh, those are the things I really want to feel anytime I'm picking up a book. And I think those are the things that people really connect with. But yeah. All right. So I've gotten a couple of questions from an aspiring author. Um, they're BIPOC and they have run up against these problems mm-hmm. a, a lot of time where they're told, well, we already have a brown person that is on mm-hmm. our list. Like we don't, you know, what do you have to bring to the table? Or like, oh, you're, you know, you're black. Why aren't you writing about the American South? Mm-hmm. Like, because I'm not from there. So yeah. And they also feel very alone in this experience yeah. and um, wanted to know where they can find other people, um, particularly uh, uh, POC in the literary space, 
um, to commune with, support, request support from mm -hmm. um, on as they go through this like mm -hmm. difficult experience of getting rejected and misunderstood over and mm -hmm. over again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so frustrating. It's so isolating. And, you know, even as someone who has a lot of connection in the industry and, you know, obviously I'm not a writer, I'm, I'm on this side of the fence here, but sometimes it can feel really isolating even for me in terms of like, oh, I'm trying to do this thing I look around and I'm dealing primarily with a group of, of um, you know, white folks. And it's, it's hard when you're trying to advocate, especially for uh, an author of color and or someone who's marginalized in other ways that when you get told, oh, this story just isn't for us or I don't I didn't connect with this or, you know, or like what you're saying, like, oh, this, you know, I had one one situation where someone was like, oh, this character gets along with his mother and that doesn't seem really believable. And I'm like, wait, what? We can't have like good families just because you're talking about someone who is a person of color, right? Like, um, and you know, those kind of things, those kind of very specific pushbacks um, are really damaging in a way that I don't think the people who are saying them realize in the moment. But to answer your question, I mean, the answer as always is community, right? Like find a community of writers that you can connect with. And it can be really hard to find those people because there's a lot of people out there and a lot of people in those writers groups or on Codex, which is a big website and things like that, who won't get what you're talking about. But if you can find that one person, two people, three people, whatever it is, who do get it and build, you know, a little writers group with them, you know, share your work, be critique partners, hold each other's hands as they go, as you all go through this process together, that can make such a huge difference. So you know, I know a lot of my friends or a lot of my clients and, and other writer friends are in various slacks, like a queer slack or a trans slack or a POC slack or an agent slack or whatever it is. Um, there's all these different or discords or what, you know, all these little private chat rooms where I know they're all doing such good work supporting each other and talking about issues that they all face. Um, and every time I hear about what's happening in those, it always sounds really, I mean, every now and again, it's like, oh, that one went off the rails and they disappeared into some like, it, they imploded in under some political situation that they were all fighting, but you know, every discord chat, of course, of course, <laughs> listen, it's social dynamics. Friends <laughs> fall apart. It happens. But also I think a lot of those, they support each other too. And I think there's something really beautiful and really essential in that. So, you know, to your listener and to your friend, I would say, try and find those people. And I know it's hard and I know it's discouraging, but you know, there's always the next book. There's always the next project. There's always someone else you can reach out to, you know, just keep going. You know, um, it's, it's, it's a long road in publishing and it's a long road to finding that community. Um, but if you do, it's really, really worth it in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So do they have to kind of start at a more general, like, writers you know this is the big writers group and you have mm -hmm. to go into it to find the uh the smaller communities i mean i think that's one way to do it you know going to writers conferences going to meetups in your town um hopping on twitter and seeing who's talking um you know and i think those are ways to start to connect to other people um it, or you know you can look for people who aren't sort of in the same situation or same city that you're in um i think trying to build those online communities is really important um especially if you're marginalized, online communities are so much easier to develop than trying to find those people in person. So, you know, I would, I would sort of recommend starting in, you know, forums, websites, Twitter, those kind of things, and trying to find people who you really connect with and just reach out to them and just talk and see if there's something there or, you know, it always just ask like, Hey, would you be willing to look at my stuff? Or, Hey, if you ever have something you want someone to take a look at, let me know. Right. I think there are ways to do that. Um, it's making friends, which is a hard thing to do. So um, that's, that's, that's what I would recommend at least. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's also an element of like being generous with your own, yeah. like, yeah, offers to exactly. read, et cetera. Exactly. I mean, mm -hmm. don't let people take advantage of you, obviously, no. like watch out for yourself, <laughs> uh, you know, keep your head on a swivel. But, but, you know, I do think being vulnerable is a really hard thing to do. And that's sometimes what it takes to start a relationship. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this kind of goes with the earlier question about finding an agent you can trust. Like, how can how can this person find non POC allies who are interested in actually helping them and supporting them? Mm -hmm. And um, how, she's uh, they said, how do we trust when we've been ignored or tokenized for a long time? Ooh, uh, it's hard. It's hard. Um, you know, I think this is a case where doing your research really is important, right? Read the interviews. We almost every agent does 
interviews, podcasts like this one, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, check out what they've done. What do they say? Um, and most importantly, who do they publish, right? This isn't a guarantee. I definitely know some people who publish some really great people who I'm like, hmm, you have some interesting opinions. But, <laughs> but in general, that's a good place to start. Look who they're publishing, right? And if somebody is talking a good game about being an ally, but their entire list is very uniform and very homogenous, then maybe that person's not right for you, right? But at least if someone is publishing these voices is showing a real commitment, not just in what they're saying, but in the time and effort and labor they're putting into this, then that is something that I think always earns more credit for me at least, right? Um, I'm always like, show me the work, right? Show me what you've done. And I think that will change how I think about the situation a lot. Um, And then, you know, again, Trust your instincts in that conversation. Ask the difficult questions, right? If you're feeling uncertain, then if you ask that question and that person reacts badly, then what is it going to, what's going to happen if you're having an editorial conversation or you're, you're, you're talking about, I don't want to work with this editor because this editor said something. How are you going to have that conversation where so many more things are on the line than in this initial conversation you're having between a potential agent and a potential client, right? Um, so ask those questions, push back on those things. You're doing yourself a favor by trying to find answers to those. And if the agent, potential agent doesn't want to address those, or doesn't want to talk to you about those things, then they're not going to be willing to talk about it when it really matters. So you're saying be, um, be transparent about what you care about from the beginning. So you don't get nasty surprises later on. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and don't, don't be super aggressive about it, right? Don't be, don't be cruel about it. But I think asking very real questions is an important, that's you looking out for yourself. So switching gears a little bit, um, near the beginning of lockdown, we talked with an editor at Atria, Rakesh mm-hmm. Satyal. About, oh, he's so um, great. He's great. I, yeah. I, it was a great conversation. Yeah. Um, so we talked about how work was going and it was near the very beginning. So he was like, well, I'm, I'm getting a lot of reading done and I'm getting a lot of writing done, but you know, generally it's the same. Um, and now some time has passed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you were in the same, you were in the same like city. Um, how is it now? How is your take on it? Um, is, is there more uh, fraughtness? in New York publishing right now in terms of the pandemic and I mean for me I've worked from home for years you know back when I was in Portland you know I was working from home there when I even when I moved back to Brooklyn you know I'm only I was only going to the office one day a week and mostly just go in and see my colleagues and gossip for a minute and then you know say hi right like so in, in a weird way it hasn't professionally it hasn't been that big of a change right um I've always worked from home. I like working from home. I do all my business over email and phone anyways. You know, I'm, I'm not, I miss seeing people face-to-face. I miss lunches and, you know, getting drinks with friends and things like that um, who are usually also editors and people in the business. So I'm definitely missing out on that side of the business, but materially it's, it, it's not that different in a weird way uh, for me specifically. Um, I think for people who work inside publishers who, you know, had to go into the office four days a week and, and have a lot of, in-person meetings and things like that. I think that has been a big shift. And I do think the first month, month and a half was a pretty big transition for them. They're like, wait, how do we do all these things via Zoom or whatever it is? Now, those things seem to be going a lot smoother. Um, My sense is those systems have like sort of resolved themselves a little bit and everyone's having a little bit easier time of managing um, their ability to, you know, do a production meeting over the internet or do an art meeting over the internet, things like that. so I think everyone's sort of figuring it out and sort of proving that actually publishing can work remotely just fine in spite of what everyone's been saying for years. Uh, and it looks like we're going to continue to work remote until the fall at least. Um, so, you know, I think we're kind of back to business as usual in a weird way. Um, everything's still a little weird and a little discombobulated. And I think that's always going to f- be true uh, until this sort of uh, this, this quarantine pandemic era has, has truly quieted down. Um, but publishing seems to be doing just fine is my general impression of it. So you're not seeing like timidity and acquisitions right now with the editors you're pitching to? You know, there was, there was sort of an initial worry that people were going to, um, you know, stop buying books or stop paying out. Um, you know, I was a little worried about that initially. I was like, Oh, are they going to be still be paying these advances on time? Things like that. But 
in practice, that hasn't really happened. Um, you know, I think book sales have stayed reasonably strong, surprisingly. Um, and, you know, my, my sense is that no one is like existentially worried about the industry at this point. Um, so yeah, people are still buying books. Um, you know, I haven't really been sending much out during this period, but I have friends who've done big deals and a number of people, uh, who are, who business is progressing very normally. Um, you know, I've done some audio stuff and some foreign stuff in this time, just, you know, standard things ticking along. So I have seen basically no disruption in my business at all. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of my colleagues and friends. I love to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that um, now that everyone's gotten a taste of the uh, work from home life, that there might be a little bit of decentralization of the industry or are, do you think e people are eager to return to that uh, enclave? <laughs> I don't think people are eager to return to that enclave. Do I think this is going to inspire a wave of decentralization? No. I think publishers are pretty set in their ways and I think they want things to happen in a certain way. Um, I think this may prove it is possible. So over the years, we'll see some more change. But I don't think we're going to have a sudden shift in everyone working from home and lots of people working from outside uh, New York um, in the next year to five years. Um, I think over time, that's going to continue to shift as it has been. But this isn't going to be some big sea change moment. I don't know. I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, actually, because I do think um, decentralizing out of New York would be very good for the industry in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess... I guess if things are progressing well right now, there's no reason for them to worry about that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's not a threat. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, publishing's under enough threats. It doesn't need one more. <laughs> I don't, I, I have nothing. <laughs> so do you have any uh, parting words, things you want to shout out? Um, uh, at all. You have a lot of things going oh God, on. <laughs> I have so many things going on. And, you know, I keep starting new projects. So uh, I just started a new project this week, actually, that is a uh, live streaming show that I'm doing with a friend of mine, Seth Fishman of the Gurner Agency. Uh, and the two of us are doing sort of an educational weekly series. Um, it's on YouTube and on Twitch, uh, where we talk about what it is to be an agent and the process of being an agent. And really, the goal is to educate people who want to work in the industry or want to be literary agents or already are and are trying to learn more. Um, you know, it's a way to address the way that working remotely doesn't provide a lot of those ad hoc learning opportunities of being in the same office. So that's called um, Agent Talk with Seth and Dongwan. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Agent Talk Show. Uh, we stream every Friday at one o'clock Eastern um, on YouTube and on Twitch. Uh, we've done one show so far. So when I say every Friday, that is ambitious and we'll see if that holds up. Um, <laughs> I also have a newsletter called Publishing is Hard that you can find on Substack, uh, where I write about my own experiences in publishing, my own thoughts on, on uh, both writing craft, the business of publishing, what's happening in the market, things like that. Um, it's, it's sort of a more personal, a little bit more emotional take on things. Um, and yeah, and then you can follow me on Twitter. Um, you'll see me tweeting about all my clients' projects and upcoming book releases and things like that. Great. Um, are you accepting queries right now? I am accepting queries. I've just reopened to queries, but only from black writers. Great. So this is a way of me trying to address a lot of the things that I've been talking about. And I've always believed that we as an industry don't emphasize black voices enough. Um, and, you know, I personally have felt that I haven't been doing enough on that front. And this is one way that I want to address that and start actively bringing in more black voices into my list and being able to promote those stories and promote those books in the world. So. Uh, if you are a black writer, please feel free to email me. You can look up my information um, on at dongwansong.com and you'll find the submission guidelines there. And you can find us on Facebook at Hybrid Pub Scout, on Twitter at Hybrid Pub Scout, and Instagram at Hybrid Pub Scout Pod. Please visit our website, hybridpubscout.com. And while you're there, click join our troop to get our new guide, the HPS Guide to Picking Your Publishing Path. It's free. Um, and thanks for giving a rip about books. <laughs>